mention it. Yeah. Episode number 28, 28, 28 or 29, 28. 28, episode 28 of the Now That You Mentioned a Podcast with Kevin and Dane. I'm Dane. And I'm Kevin. What's happening? Having a nice tea, hot tea, but, but out of the, out of the glass. Out of cup, the mug. What? Yeah. Who else? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, this is like, <laughs> am, said, I, am I, am I, am I in, am I in Istanbul or am I just right. in the tri-state? Like, you don't know because right. I'm you drinking know. the tea yeah. out of the glass. Exactly. <laughs> the hot tea out of the glass. <laughs> the hot tea you out can, of the glass. You can look at where you can only sip from the brim. You can only hold the cup. You can only hold the glass from the brim. Yeah, I know. That, that <laughs> actually is the one, like, that's the one marker of authenticity. I need the glass with the little. Oh, yeah. You need the stem. The glass, like the Turkish shit, like with the. Where you can hold it with right. like a mug, but you're not right. Actually- yeah, that's why I said with the little stem joint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, no, that's it, what's it, up. it takes it. It makes it. It gives it a different feel. Sometimes I'm like, no, I'm going to go for the tea out of the glass, the hot tea out of the glass. Yeah, I don't know if I've if I've gone the hot tea out of the glass. I don't know if I've made that move yet. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It has a certain has a certain vibe. So je ne sais quoi. Yeah. <laughs> um. So today, main segment of the show, we are talking about violence. Just a little light talk about, you know, fucking violence. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to be looking at the work of Judith Butler, France Fanon. Did I say it right? Yeah. Maybe some, uh, who else? Did, well, some Thoreau with a little civil disobedience, a little, uh, a sprinkle of, Sprinkling Benjamin, George. yeah, Benjamin, some, yeah. some George Sorrell, right? Some, yeah, yeah. We're, so. we're talking about violence, um, but for the opening seg, I got I got a little something prepared. But what you got? We don't have to jump into that. I don't have anything prepared for the opening seg. You don't have anything yeah. prepared. I don't have. I, I'm, a, I'm slacking. I rely on you for the opening sake. No, 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 no. Um, sometimes it's like all your trials and tribulations. (laughs) (laughs) No, I got like a little bit. I put like a little bit of a presentation together for the opening sag. Although, oh, see, I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So, yeah, because like some of the over the past few weeks, it's like hasn't totally been time for the silly opening sag, and this isn't totally a silly opening sag. It's like somewhere, somewhere in, in between and some intermediary between like it's just jokes, but also I'm being dead ass serious. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about podcast extraordinaire, comedian, mm. legendary bro, mm. L. Hunter, <laughs> UFC commentator, like quasi libertarian but also now 
just signed a hundred million plus deal with Spotify, Joe Rogan. Yeah. Now, I guess I should. The preamble will be that I do listen occasionally, more than occasionally, to the Joe Rogan podcast because he does have very, very interesting, qualified, and you know, expert people on that you wouldn't really hear elsewhere um, unless you're seeking them out. And it's cool to be exposed. Like he is like mad, like astrophysicists on that. I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. let me check this shit out. So I tune in, I, I, I keep my eye on Rogan and Rogan either takes me here mm-hmm. or he takes me <laughs> here. And what I want to talk about today is maybe like kind of put this guy in perspective um, a little bit, but specifically his conspiracy theory angle that he has he's very very preoccupied with conspiracy theories and i noticed that especially nowadays when the stakes are so high when there's a a pandemic afoot people are dying based on what information they're getting or not getting what information they're willing to accept or not accept um whether or not they're willing to believe or not believe in science I just feel like the stakes are very high and my tolerance for someone with a, I hate using like this digital media language, but like someone with a platform as, as big as Joe Rogan's, which is probably one of the biggest voices in the fucking world. Um, yeah. To, for him to be coming with these sort of false equivalencies and, and giving credence to conspiracy theories, I think is just like, it really makes my blood boil. Irresponsible, irresponsible, flat out irresponsible. But so what I've got is, is this, and I'd be curious to, to um, hear what you think about this, Kevin, because he does this, this move where, where he kind of shields himself from criticism by, with this refrain of, well, I'm just an idiot. Well, I'm just a comedian. <laughs> so why would anyone listen argument. to me? <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a way of, it's a way of sort of eluding culpability for anything you're saying by just relying on this, the, like I'm this, like I'm a comedian right. thing. I'm I don't qualified. know. And he is a comedian, but what, like, what do you feel? How do you feel about that? Just from, from the gate? Um, I mean, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's a sort of like, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, it's like this, you know, it's a deflection. It's a way to sort of inculcate your way yourself from criticism because it's like I'm telling you out the gate in this, you know, self-deprecating way that like I'm unqualified for whatever it is that I'm going to say, but I'm going to proceed to say it. (laughs) And that's what's so that's what's so frustrating. It's like if you legitimately believed that you – that no one should be listening to you and that you you would worry because that's what Joe Rogan says too when he comes to his, his political hot takes. He's like, why would anyone take my opinion seriously? It's almost like he's worried that people might take him seriously but then he stops short. He doesn't follow that thought through to the logical conclusion of, well, maybe then I shouldn't say it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. just maybe that's just for me. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel that because then it's like, I mean, at that point, you're you're there. People like Joe Rogan are sort of talking out both sides of their neck. Right. Like it, it's it's like. OK, I don't 
want to be sort of tied to whatever my opinion is on this particular topic at the moment, because I don't know. I am sort of uninformed uh, about it on the whole. But then at the same time, we'll turn around and are like the staunchest free speech advocates and like I should have the right to say, you know, whatever I want to say. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, so that's true. And because of that, then you are sort of obligated to own what it is that you say. And that's the part that like he comes in with the, well, I'm just a comedian. I just, you know, I'm just some guy or yeah, or yeah, yeah, whatever. And it's just like, well, no, you aren't <laughs> like and really nobody is for that matter. Like when you really think about it. So it's like, no, that's that's really not a not a valid sort of defense. Yeah. 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 So what I want to do is just sort of talk, bring in some specific examples, because I went back through and looked at some of the more egregious examples of this phenomenon at work. Mm-hmm. And so how I would set this up is that, I mean, Joe Rogan, I think he's gone through these uh, these like peaks and valleys of being legitimately convinced of certain conspiracy theories, um, if I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And then uh, also like sort of coming off the ledge and being like, well, maybe I'm not really going to die on that hill anymore, like in terms of believing like the 9-11 conspiracy theory or whatever. Um, right. But so but the point is, is that he consistently traffics in these conspiracy theories, but importantly stops short of explicitly endorsing them, um, like like the idea that 9-11 was an ins- inside job. And then, like we've said, he then goes on to insulate himself from criticism with, with you know, the refrain of, I'm not an expert, I don't know what I'm talking about, or I'm an idiot, no one should listen to me. But the argument I want to advance here is that this is, it's not the Dunning-Kruger effect exactly. It's sort of like, it's like an, it's related to the Dunning-Kruger effect, mm-hmm. But um, and just from like a consequentialist perspective, I think it's a moral wrong for him to be lending legitimacy to these wacky ass ideas. So I went I I, 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 I like kind of looked th- sorted through with a fine tooth comb some of like his conspiracy theory centric episodes. <laughs> There's this one episode way back a couple of years ago from a guy named uh, with a guy named Brian Dunn- Dunning. And Brian Dunning basically brings this up to Rogan himself, confronts him on his own platform and says, this is Brian Dunning saying, quote, as someone with a huge, with as huge an audience as you have, I think you have more of a responsibility to make sure that people like that are called out. And, and right now they're talking about a guy who Joe Rogan had on his podcast who was talking these like wild theories about how he, there's these pills that you can take prior to drinking and then you won't get drunk. So it's like, that might seem silly, but it's also like, but it's also like, what if someone listens to that, pops one of these fucking pills that some dude is hawking on their like Fugazi website and then like drinks and fucking gets in a car and fucking slaughters some like innocent fucking pedestrian. Then Joe Rogan says this, I think this is, I, I quoted him verbatim. He says, quote, I don't have any obligation other than to talk to people. My obligation is to ask questions if I'm curious. I make the very clear distinction that I'm not an expert. So he 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 stops short of like really endorsing the, the these kind of like pseudoscientific mm-hmm. ideas and like conspiracy theory, theory ideas. Another one, like I mentioned, was the the World Trade Center con- conspiracy theory. He he says. Um, on this is from episode number 721 joe rogan says quote i'm not an architect i'm not an engineer 
I don't understand what uh, what buildings need to stay up or what can bring them down. When I look at that, though, it looks like a controlled demolition. It behaves exactly the same. I've never heard of a building that falls apart like that. And it just breaks apart in free, from, free fall. But what do I know? So it's like it's like this meta Dunning-Kruger effect where the Dunning-Kruger effect is when people that are really uninformed about a certain subject think that they know a lot precisely <laughs> because they know so little. This is like he's acknowledging that he doesn't know shit, but he still wants to like have his cake and eat it too. Yeah. I mean, Joe Rogan is like sort of like the, the most extreme representation of, of like this conspiratorial bent within like just American society, like writ large. And, and it's like, he, it, the more you, the more you're like talking about it the more i'm starting to believe like he's his platform is what it is simply because it sort of affirms this conspiratorial that's a really good point you know bent within american culture right and so like the fact that he is willing to platform you know going back to the the digital language <laughs> like the fact that he's willing to platform conspiracy theorists and like pseudoscientists and and fucking neo-nazis basically and shit like that is it's it's like for the dope interviews that i appreciate of of joe rogan's it's like at what cost really like (laughs) i sort of think about it like at what cost because when you talk about like free speech and and you know the sort of free flowing uh, or libertarian nature of like the the sort of idea economy, right? Like this ability to sort of put your ideas out there and see what sort of catches and and what gains some traction and shit like that. It's like he gives so many people, <laughs> like millions and millions of viewers who, like you said, are sort of coming into the Joe Rogan experience uninformed already. Yeah. And then it's like, well, here's this person who's, you know, sort of like semi-articulate and has some sort of like answer. And that's really what people were looking for, too, is just answers to shit. And so it's like, you know, this person has some sort of like answer that's, that's, uh, I guess you could say like that at least accessible to the average person and how they sort of understand these like larger machinations of like global power and all of that type of shit. It's just like, Oh, well clearly that's what, you know, that's what it is. And it's legitimized because I was listening to it on Joe Rogan. Dude, that's so smart. And I hadn't even really thought about it. But what you're saying makes me think also that a a couple of things are at play here. One is that his identity as this kind of blue collar dude who's just sort of like this Joe Schmo everyman who just happens to have a platform where like he gets 200 million listens a month. Right, right. That kind of – that part of his identity – kind of lends to him this certain authenticity where and plus layered on top of that is his identity as a a comedian where comedians are 
you know, in in many ways regarded as people who are willing to tell the truth regardless of the consequences. So I think there's both there's this kind of like anti-expert, anti-intellectual strain that he's able to take advantage of. And and that's why he's able to have this huge audience. He's able to tap into that sort of like cultural obsession with with uh, with conspiracy theories and this sort of like anti-intellectual strain that seems to be really popping right now um as evidenced by fucking everything it seems like <laughs> uh, and i mean you can say like really american culture just in general is sort of anti-intellectual like yeah. hence why somebody like joe rogan is able to amass that type of listenership in the first place yep and just yeah, I think I think you just said it perfectly. I just want to go through a few more of these more egregious examples <laughs> to just sort of, which sort of just crystallize my, uh, which kind of crystallize what I'm talking about here. So another another phenomenon which you've already touched on, Kevin, is that Joe Rogan will platform you know, these fucking nutty ass whack jobs and and not do the now he's going to say he's not a journalist, but not do the journalistically um, proper thing to do, which would be to say which would be to say up front, like, OK, this person hasn't really, you know, had been vetted or like their sources are kind of like suspect or whatever. But um he had this woman on, this is from episode 1299, this woman named Annie Jacobson, who is a journalist, pretty legitimate journalist, um, but who was described as the by the Washington Post as um, someone who, quote, writes sensational books by addressing popular conspiracy theories. And she was on Joe Rogan to advance, mm-hmm. among other things, the claim that um, – there, there was this famous like Roswell, New Mexico supposed UFO crash. She was on Rogan to advance this claim that that supposed US UFO crash is actually attributable to like Joseph Stalin sending a flying saucer designed <laughs> designed by the Nazis filled with 13-year-olds who had had their heads surgically enlarged to scare Americans. And now – I will say that this writer, Annie Jacobson, has written other more credible books, but uh, Richard Rhodes, a a Pulitzer Prize winning author and actual historian, uh, Mm -hmm. reviewed the book that she was on Rogan to plug and said this, quote, Jacobson shows herself at to be at a minimum extraordinarily gullible or journalistically incompetent. And Joe Rogan's on there and – entertaining this shit for three hours like it's legit and the examples of stuff like that you know he has alex jones on he has this fucking whack job bob lazar on who's like this area 51 yeah 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 yeah. and (laughs) and then i'll call attention to one other thing within this sort of typical roganistic shift where um on episode um 1161 with gerard carmichael who i actually like um yeah i fuck with gerard he, he's talking about uh, his stance on the moon landing. And Rogan says, although, although he he never comes out and says straight up that he thinks the moon landing was a hoax, he'll now he, – well, he'll, he'll acknowledge that he used to think it fully was a hoax. But now he's in this in-between where he's giving legitimacy to both sides of the argument or the faux argument. He's even calling it an argument uh, delegitimizes it. But um, – where he no longer says, you know, I fully believe that it was a hoax, but he'll just say, actually, I don't know. So he says, quote, 
I was convinced that we didn't go to the moon for a long time. Now I'm convinced that I have no idea. Mm-hmm, the agnostic. The, the agnostic. The, yeah, the agnostic. <laughs> and it's, it's totally not a credible opt out. It's not a case where saying I don't know is the responsible thing to do because it gives false credence to the other, to the other side. It's, it's like saying, well, it's not that I don't believe in evolution. It's just that I don't know. I'm not a biologist. I don't know anything. It's not that I think global warming is a hoax. You know, I'm not a climatologist. I just don't know. So I'm just – and then the thing that really set me off was him coming out and basically explicitly endorsing the Obamagate conspiracy theory, the mask thing. He's been you know, willing to criticize the response of like we shouldn't have at first. And it's like, well, that's – science works. We didn't know. Like we're – I don't know. Like his his endorsing of like the Obamagate thing and how he's been with the masks is just – Really, really infuriating to me. And you regardless know. of whether or not he shirks responsibility, he has fucking responsibility. And it's just, right. you know, it's it's just OD at this point. The, so that the, that's my Rogan rant. Yeah, I, I fuck with it. Because I, I guess, like, in, in terms of the Obamagate shit, um, and as people who are close to me, as you are, Dane, you know I have no love for Obama. <laughs> but... It's like it's so much shit that you could legitimately call out Obama on, but you choose to do this shit. And it just goes back to the point about him being like this sort of like affirmation of conspiratorial thinking, of the legitimacy of conspiratorial thinking. It's like the the fact that like and it's almost like I look at him in the same way I do like mainstream news, how critical I am of mainstream news is. Well, they're, they're pushing certain agendas, the fact that they have, you know, billion dollar owners and shit like that. Like you never see a bad uh, Pentagon review come out of the Washington Post. Well, why is that? Well, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and he is on the board of the Pentagon. It's not a conspiracy. That's just fact. So right, naturally, right. <laughs> naturally, the the paper that he owns isn't going to undermine the board. You know what I'm saying? Some shit yeah. that he sits on. So it's like... <clears throat> You can go at people from that perspective, but you choose to go with the sensationalized conspiracy shit. And it's just like, well, now you've just like completely undermined the mission of like intellectual openness and shit like that. Because we have to like also be real, like certain ideas. I don't give a fuck how much free speech the First Amendment grants us. Certain ideas are not worth being in the public sphere, period. It's just certain shit that's just fucking stupid. (laughs) Like, it's no other way around it. And the fact that you have somebody who has a platform that, you know, like you said, 200 million listeners or whatever, each fucking episode damn near, it's like, well... This person definitely has a responsibility because they're helping shape the mainstream discourse. If 200 million people are listening to what the fuck you're saying, you have a you have an enormous responsibility to make sure that the shit that you're bringing on is valid. And as yeah. much as I don't fuck with like you know, these 
ultra right wing libertarians or whatever, are there some that have legitimate sort of political ideological arguments that are worth being, you know, advanced in the public sphere? Yeah. I don't agree with them, but they're, you know, but then once you go past that, once you go beyond that, and now we're getting into like all this conspiracy, any motherfucker who has all the answers clearly doesn't know what they're talking about. Yep. <laughs> like he brings people on who has all the answers, has it all figured out and all of that shit. It's, it's a clear indication that you actually don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I just think it's 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 like a phenomenon that's very specific, obviously, to the internet. But just like, in, I wonder how or if you know someone like that, like Rogan, can can rationally justify, or how they would rationally justify, you know, having someone like Alex Jones on when it's all fun and games and it's all free speech and it's all this whack job conspiracy shit until the acolytes of fucking Alex Jones start, you know, doxing and real life harassing the, the parents of murdered five-year-olds from Sandy Hook, Connecticut, because these, these motherfuckers are convinced that it was what, 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 what's the word they have for it? A false flag operation. Right. right. So it it was, sorry to cut you off, bro, but I really got to say like, but I think what's even more sort of pernicious is having somebody like Alex Jones or whoever on and sort of perpetuating these ideas of like this secret cabal of nefarious, mm-hmm. you know, whoever's in this dark, smoky room yep. that are dictating like what's going on. And it's like, well, now you're just completely like depoliticizing people at that point and and stymieing like any true sort of advancement of like social progression. So it's like you're truly undermining (laughs) the the project that you purport to be set out to, you know, achieve, which is, oh, let's have this, you know, open dialogue and, 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 you know, in turn, this will inform more people and uh, more informed populace. So then therefore be, you know, a more progressive society or whatever. Well, Joe Rogan, you aren't fucking helping with that. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. It's not even that he's not helping. (laughs) It's he's actively a detriment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're under, you're actively undermining that project. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's my, that's our fucking Rogan rant. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm done with my uh, my last tea. Yeah, I'm done with my beer. I need to. Wait, what what? Oh, what quick, quick beer review? What are you drinking? Oh, and then we'll go to a break. Review. Oh yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you know I you you know when I get on something, it's it, that's it. So, you know I got the founders, the You're, centennial, okay. the centennial IPA. I you know what, bro? Actually, because I knew we were recording today. And um, I knew I would be obviously be on with you. I bought the uh, bought a bat the last the last six pack of the porter. Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> had to had to cop the last six pack. But I did find the like I found the crazy like founders plug. Mm. Yeah, it's like this it's this deli like right on like 
131 in Linux. Found like damn near all the flavors. So damn all the flavors. Damn near. <laughs> <laughs> damn near. I was like, okay, okay. But yeah, so the Centennial IPA is, is what I'm fucking with right now. It's it's pretty good. It's a it's I actually like that more. They have a another one, an all day IPA. Right. And I've that one's that, a, one. that one's that one's a little bit lighter, more hoppy, you know. Would you say it's summery? Is it on season? Yeah. Well, because they it's it's sort of like a year round. It's it's more of a year round piece. Mm, okay. But it's definitely like more appropriate for spring, summer. Yeah. Drinking. Yeah, for sure. I fuck with it though, but I, I like this one more. It's, I like you know, I like heavier, sort of full bodied. Yeah, full bodied. Yeah. Yeah. Hobby. So, yeah. Yeah. So I you know, the the uh <laughs> my dad calls the like light design you know the light uh the light IPAs and, and shit like that the he calls them designer beer <laughs> so I I'm not a big fan of designer beer. Yeah yeah, yeah. I, so. I love beer so much or that 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 like nice fancy shit but right. again it's like I have one of them I, I, my body, I can tell the next morning. Like, it's not like I'm hung over for real off one beer, but if I have two, <laughs> if I have two, I'm, I'm you're done. Up. You're like, done. Damn. Wow. Like the next day I'm like, right. the next you're day damn it. near might as well be a lot. Like I might as well have had fucking 10 at that point. Wow. Like there's no in between. There's no in between for my body. I don't so know why. how, like how, how do you function? I mean, and I know we were supposed to go to break, but I know you were just in Asheville, right? We I wasn't actually in Asheville. You I was outside in, Asheville. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Asheville is is you know for our listeners, that's actually one of my favorite cities um, in the country. Asheville is super dope, but we have like once the Rona shit is you know over, we we have to take a a trip to Asheville and do like a beer crawl for. Yeah, the weekend. So no, I'm with that, and I'm I, I'm totally with that. It's just like then you're the just gonna have to get your shit together. No, I, I know we're just gonna have to like figure out a, a sort of like post post drinking sort of rejuvenation. Like I need the rejuvenation. We, <laughs> we may have to do some yoga. Sauna, shit. Right. Ice, so we can I don't know. Whatever. So we can hit the next. We can hit the next brewery. So Hell yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, on that note, we'll take a break and come back and talk about violence. Yeah.
right. Welcome back to the Now That You Mentioned podcast. Hope you enjoyed that break. Um, shout out to Chris Giuliano on the music, who is a sick ass producer. And I wish he would just fucking make a goddamn beat tape of these, right. of these, these songs <laughs> that he's made for us so I can just listen to them because that, that's how fucking good they are. We're extremely lucky to have him in the NTYMI uh, camp. Family. Yeah. Family, family collective. camp, collective uh, co- collaborator. Right. Um, and shout out to Steph Silver for the for the art, the hilarious art and the good As art, always. the cover art. Hilari- she captures the hilarity. She captures the absurdity of it. <laughs> right. She dives into the weird internet meme culture, but then she right. can come with some just fi- straight up fire graphic right. design. And right. also at this point in the show, um, we'd like to invite you to follow us on social media at NTYMIPod. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Twitcher, Stitcher. What, all of that? Twitcher. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shout out to Bronny, too. Oh, shout out our to Bronny, who's in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out to everyone who continues to listen to the podcast and promote yeah, it too. and uh, stream it. Fuck with the algo. Right. I mean, we've been getting some algo love lately. The algo needs to percolate better, though, just in general. Like, why does the oh, algo yeah. percolate the most banal, inane shit that has no bearing on any of my interests online or otherwise? But, like, it's, it's not going to percolate some dope shit. Like, I have to, you know. You got to search for that. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess that's the rewarding part of finding something that's a dope. I guess. But, like, why is it percolating? Like, oh, Doja Cat goes sneaker shopping. <laughs> Some easy consumable shit. Like, oh. that's why. Yeah. All right. So we're talking about violence. Uh, just for everyone's uh, edification, I guess, the our sources this week were uh, Judith Butler's The, the Force, Force of, of Nonviolence, which is a – I guess you could call it an essay, but it's really a book. Uh, yeah. France Fanon's uh, The Wretched of the Earth. Yep. Um, uh, Walter or Walter Benjamin's. I'm taking yeah. my German lessons. Yeah, you got to go to the, the, uh, the Deutsch. <laughs> you got to go to um, Deutsch. Right? A critique of violence. Um, right. Thoreau's civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Do we have anything else? Um, no, I mean, I, I no, no, because I, I, I don't think we really got into the Sorel too much, but yeah. Sorel was was another. Um, was another one. I forgot what his text was called exactly. Um, but yeah, this was this was a really fascinating topic for me. We wanted to talk about violence and really what we're trying to answer. Uh, uh, we're really trying to answer a number of questions. Among them, what defines and who defines violence? When, if ever, is violence justified? Right. Um, and so I think so sort of to even to sort of backtrack from that is th- our conversation is is rooted in political violence, right? Like this we're talking about state violence and violence vis-a-vis social movements and and um sort of like projects that are are seeking, you know, liberation projects and so on 
in that case, as opposed to like domestic violence or, you know, you fucking beating up the cat who, you know, you saw walking down the street or some shit like that. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I don't know. How do you want to dive in? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Well, I guess like the the central question would be what is violence, right? Mm. And and then that question necessarily sort of raises well, then who's able to define what is violent and what isn't? So, what do you think is what do you consider to be violence? So I'm still pretty hard line about my definition of violence, despite having read Butler, who actually, you know what? I'm not, I'm actually not sure. Um, <laughs> because earlier in the, go through the, the NTY, my discog, you'll find me at some point arguing, and I still stand by this argument that words are not violence, um, despite sort of the, the, the push that I've, feel is being made by people to include words under the umbrella of violence. Mm. I think that was a free speech episode. Yeah, um, it was. <clears throat> yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm still not going to go th- to words are violent. I feel like violence is a specific word that we use to describe f- force and bodily harm. And so under that rubric of violence, Butler does make the case that policies can be violent they can have violent results. And I, I'm with that. Um, I just, I would say that though, that I am not someone who is going to sort of descend into a relativism about violence and say that, well, violence is just whatever those in power define it as. I'm not going to, I will say that there are there are right and wrong answers about what violence is or isn't. Like I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not a relativist when it comes to it. I'm a realist. Um, so I guess my question would be, um, in that case, so like you agree that, so I, so that distinction, right? Like, I think what you're saying in terms of violence, not being words, right? I think, I think that's more on a interpersonal level. Yes. Right. Like that's, that's interpersonal we're talking about like, you know, if somebody's verbally, you know, shitting on you or whatever, that's not violence. Now, you know, it may hurt and, you know, all of this stuff or whatever, but you're saying like, that's not violence. Um, But you agree that public policy, right? Like public, well, public policy that becomes enacted. So I was just in my head, just trying to think of a uh, like an objection to what I'm saying and you know if if some politician writes some some words that he's trying he or she is trying to get enacted into law that would be violent were they enacted but then they're not enacted well then they're just words and they weren't violent right right right, right. right. but public yeah but yeah when we take when we say public policy we're obviously saying past legislation yeah, past yeah, and ratified yeah. legislation so yeah so in that case words can be considered violence, right? 
Well, I would say it's not the words that are, it's, I would say it's not the words that are violent. It's the, it's, it's the, the backing, <laughs> it's the, it's backing, the backing, the embodiment, the, the acting upon those. It's the, it's the actual. Or, or, okay. So, so yeah. So I guess in that case, it's, it's actually words aren't violent insofar as they're just, you know, the the actual utterance or the the construction of words put in just letters together or whatever isn't violent or whatever, but it, it's contingent upon like sort of interpretation, but then also like a, a certain force behind mm. or a certain power behind those words that allow for them to be, because all words are just descriptions anyway, right? They just exactly. sort of describe phenomena. So, um, so yeah, so in that case, like, public policy is violent insofar as it's act, you know, as it's enacted. And then that, you know, so like mass incarceration is violence, right? Of course. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, And, and, and just to sort of uh, reinforce or give another example to my realism when it comes to violence, Butler uh, in one of the, in either the first or second chapter cites um, as an example corporations deeming boycotts to be a form of violence. And mm-hmm. this was sort of, I guess, in her view, although, although Butler says she's not, she doesn't descend totally into, into a, a complete nihilism or relativism about what violence is or isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says that corporations will, or the powers that be define a, a, a nonviolent practice or quote unquote nonviolent practice as violent. And now I would say that a boycott is not fucking violent despite the powers that be trying to define it as such. I think, you know, a boycott is an action, but it's inherently, I mean, it's an act of omission. It's it's not a violence to me. So that's an example where I think my point comes through, which is that despite uh, power. You're taking violence as this sort of, you're taking violence as this sort of phenomenon outside of the realm of the powers that be like they don't necessarily get to define exactly what that is i think they right. have great sway in influencing public opinion uh, and and in influencing discourse as to who is violent as to what is violent um the media too, but I will say that the, but they can be wrong is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. They're all right. All I'm saying is it's, it's the same how the same way I feel about morality. Their moral relativism relativism does exist to a certain extent, but or morality is malleable to a certain extent, and people can think they're doing the right thing, but I want to say that well, they're just wrong. They can just be wrong. <laughs> like people that think. Like some fucking exec that says, well, this boycott is violent to us and to our interests. Mm-hmm. I want to say that, well, yeah, you can, you know, put a $50 million media campaign together to tell me how a boycott is violent. I just want to say you're wrong about that. Okay. I can fuck with that. I can fuck yeah. with that. Because I, I guess, like, I do personally, I'm like, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a relativist, but I do look at it from the perspective of the powers that be. Because whether or not, and I guess that's that's also <clears throat> that's also part of it is sort of like whether or not we define 
violent in our own personal and particular way, the powers that be are allowed the the sort of the power of swaying and in in constructing and shifting narratives around particular acts and shit like that. And so it's like, are, you know, are the people out, you know, protesting against police violence and, and sort of economic injustice and shit right now, like in Portland and all over the place or whatever, you know, the, the protests have in many ways sustained people, but, um, is that violent, you know, them just going out with signs and shit like that? Well, no, not in our, not in the, not in a regular sense of like, they're causing bodily harm and all of that shit or whatever. But the fact that you have militarized police out there, that fact sort of justifies their framing of this as violent, right? So like the fact that you have militarized police um, lined up against, you know, quote unquote, peaceful protesters, well, then it's no longer a peaceful protest because they're already sort of like engaged with this, you know, with this force that's already, you know, sort of leaning towards a potential violence or whatever. That's why they have fucking bulletproof vests and the shields and all of this shit or whatever. And so it's like in the in the real world and in sort of the material world, I'll say that framing of, you know, violence, the fact that the state has the power to frame that violence, I think is the part where it's like, we do have to like, look at it like it, like it's violence in order to deconstruct that notion. Cause I'm with you. Like, I don't consider, you know, people holding signs up as violent protests. I don't consider yeah. boycotts as violent protests, but the system and the powers that be do and they justify it. And then they are able to sort of justify their response to that with actual force or whatever. And so I think it's sort of incumbent upon us to make that claim and to make it known like this isn't violence. And this is why it's not violence. This is why Mm. burning fucking buildings isn't a form of violence, you know, blowing fucking target up isn't the same as kneeling on somebody's neck for nine minutes. Right. And that's the part that I think we have to like, when we talk about violence that, that that we have to sort of like really unpack because that's what they getting us on is like, Oh, well, yeah, you're, you're protesting and you're blowing shit up and you're, you know, uh, vandalizing and all of this stuff. And so that, you know, because because we look at property as this sort of extension of people and of this system that you vandalizing or you blowing some shit up or you looting or whatever is an act of violence when it's not <laughs> like it, it's, you know, just ba- any, that's like I said, that's even based on what you're saying. Like even on like the bodily harm shit, Right. Me going and stealing some fucking shoes from fight from flight club is not causing bodily harm <laughs> to, right. to and even to the owner. 
you know, unless you're trying to guard your store and, you know, then we're getting into the realm of interpersonal violence. But like on the state level and on a mass level, like that's not violent. Yeah. You know, no, so. I, th- I think I, I think I totally agree with everything you just said. The, the question that um, is most interesting to me is um, when a when violence is justified. And I do think that violence can be justified. Butler mm-hmm. makes a really good point in saying that um, oftentimes – And I think Benjamin makes this point too, that justifications of violence, maybe in self-defense, can sometimes collapse in on themselves and then become indistinguishable from the violence against which the Mm self-defending violence is supposed to protect. But but without really getting into all of that, the interesting question to me is um, like when does – violence, um, however we want to construe it, become justified. Um, And I I think Fanon is the perfect uh, person to to cite when it comes to this discussion. So maybe you want to just tell us a little bit about Fanon and his central argument, and then we can try to just get into that that question more broadly. Okay, so cool. So so Franz Fanon... uh for you Francophiles out there, France Fanon. Yeah, Martinican uh, philosopher, um, psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, and revolutionary. Um, So Fanon wrote like extensively sort of about like the phenomenological sort of underpinnings of colonialism and and racism and and sort of how that like experience plays out for the colonized subject and he does that in black skin white mask mm-hmm. and um he follows up with the wretched of the earth in i think it was like 1961 um but essentially, like the most famous passage in, in or the most famous section in um, the Wretched of the Earth is on violence. And so a bit of context, I guess, is like Fanon is sort of writing this while he's in Algeria during the, you know, Algerian war against colonial France. Right. So he's writing about the efficacy of violence within the context of colonial rule and the you know, subsequent project of liberation. And so for Fanon is like violence is seen as a precondition of the decolonial process, right? Like the fact that colonialism is a violent system in and of itself can only be dismantled through violence and so he sort of like is he sort of posits this argument like well you know you have uh the work like in a colonial society you have the workers you have the um the colonial the colonized intellectuals and then you have the um the lumping 
proletariat, right? So it's super Marxist uh, theoretical framework and shit. But basically what, what he's outlining is, well, here are the implications of colonial violence. Like this is what it sort of does to each of these classes of colonized people or whatever. And he's like, in order to break the proverbial chains of this colonial experience, you're going to have to violently bring that about. Like there's no, so he literally looks at it, looks at violence as a precondition because it's sort of like the only response. And I, I guess you could say it gets like super dialectical in that sense. It's like there's this larger fight for recognition for the colonial subject. I am a human being. And so you can't sort of reason your way into that because you've they've reasoned your colonial existence. You know, they've manifested your they manifest your colonial existence through reason, right? So you can't necessarily reason <laughs> with the colonizers in that way. He's like the only way that you can do that is blow his fucking head off, basically. That's not like at that point that he has he's forced to recognize well, here's this human being. Here's this person, like here's a person who's who has thoughts and desires and aspirations and so on and so forth or whatever. And so Fanon is, is taking this track that like in order for you to really have a decolonization process that's effective, it starts with violence. And I guess for the context that he's writing in, actually makes sense <laughs> like um to to think about you know to think about being you know a, a, a colony in the you know french antilles in martinique uh, going to algeria and seeing the sort of you know colonial project and, and all the shit that that came with that i mean when you're talking about social change in that regard, in like the most extreme sort of cases, I mean, how else do you sort of achieve that that dialectical recognition on this sort of psychosocial level, but then also like on a material level, how do you gain actual freedom, right? Like you even yeah. look at it like the, the Haitian revolution, you know, so to speak, like the the fact that you had people enslaved and working sugar canes and, you know, it's like, well, they're get they have these machetes and they're they're knocking down all the sugar cane for the <laughs> for the French metropole. But then what happens when they turn those fucking machetes on the planner class like they're no longer just. They're no longer slaves at that point, right? Yeah. Like, and, and that's that's Fanon's argument is the moment that you make that decision to enact violence as a way of exerting your agency in the world, then you're no then you've already broken the chains of whatever that that social sort of um that social relationship that was already, yeah. you know, that was persistent. You break that shit. And now 
and this is, I guess, where even Butler comes back in is, well, then how does that, you know, how do you break that cycle? Like once you use violence, then how do you stop using it <laughs> in right. order to bring about social change? So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, that, uh, yeah, that was a that was a great fucking recapitulation of. Of the Fanon. Um, but yeah, I think the fin- I think for me. I, tr- I tried to boil down his argument as much as I could. And um, what I got is that it seemed to me that he was actually arguing not only that decon- decolonization is necessarily a violent process, but that um, in order for decolonization to be efficacious, it must be violent. Seems to me he's, he's kind of like laying out the fucking blueprint for how to do right. this shit. He says, um, there are so many great quotes throughout. throughout <laughs> right, right. But yeah. I, I pulled a couple of them. This one was really short. He says, no, quote, no gentleness can efface the marks of violence. Only violence itself can destroy them. And I think the important, an important thing that he points out is that just the very nature of colonization is the process of turning people into property through, as he says, what does he say? Like the the, the machine, like mm-hmm. through force and the machine, or through the gun and what whatever he says. Um, and so, yeah, I totally uh, see what he's saying. I think it's almost because, like, a situation of colonization is such an extreme situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, what can we extrapolate from? Fanon and apply to uh, like our current political moment. You know, so with, with that, I think the sort of interesting thing to keep in mind is the sort of like how far fetched armed struggle is today in the context of like a militarized police force. Well, if the fucking yeah. police have you know, so much access to weapons and shit like that or whatever. Well, what the fuck do you think the, the military right. is is dealing with? And so I think like the just understanding like what armed struggle entails within the context of a militarized state is different today based on like just technological advancements as opposed to Phenom writing this in the 60s and Mm. when armed struggle was, you know, still at that point, even far fetched, but at least it was doable. You know what I'm saying? Like it it made enough sense to be like, huh, we can we can revolt. We can violently revolt in and potentially overthrow the colonial state. Well, that shit's not happening today, you know, especially right. in our content. Like that, that sort of like that particular project isn't going to work today based solely on the fact that the, you know, the U.S. in particular, it's, you know, armaments is on a whole, you know, it's on a ridiculous level. So it's just like, you can't really wage any true like armed struggle. That's why even why when people say this like Second Amendment right shit to oh my god, bro, don't even start on that type shit is like, do you like 
do you not know what the U.S. has at its disposal? Like, they can yeah. have a, a cat sitting in his fucking basement in with a fucking right with a fucking <laughs> joystick, and he can wipe out <laughs> an entire city. Yeah, bro. Oh. Give me, give me the most OD heavily armed of those paramilitary cats, the Second Amendment nuts, and I'm like, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes, bro. What are you? What are you gonna? <laughs> what are you gonna do when the fucking tomahawk missile comes rocketing right. through your fucking front door, you right. dumbass? How many right. sandbags? Like, right. yeah, that just so. the, the absurdity of it. But and yeah, it's sort of hard to talk about the absurdity of it because, I mean, I guess the interesting question for me is, is if we set aside, um even though it might be some some of the cats who we read might say it would be impossible to set aside. Uh, like who is trying to define violence. But if we, if we try to set that aside and say, well, if, if, if people have an agenda that they want to advance through uh, protest, violent or otherwise, what is the most like if efficacious way to get that through? And I forget the name of the, the, the academic that um, Matt Taibbi had on who wrote about, like the effectiveness oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. of our right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and how and like the difference in terms of like quote unquote nonviolent protest versus violent protest. I'm I'm right. curious what you what you think about that. And in, in, I guess in term uh, to frame it a little more in terms of a purely um, like agenda based discussion as far as like I want to do I want to get my agenda heard and passed. And I want to do it in the way that is going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, man, that's tough. Uh, because I, I guess in in Wasau sort of like um, talks about this is um, violence as it's defined, right? So like in our context, you know, damaging property is considered yeah. violent. And so that gets more, you know, media recognition. Yep. Here we go. Um and so if you're trying to just in a like you can even I, I would even go as far as to say even in a crude way. You can look at it like, well, if I blow up some shit, the news is going to be out here. And at the very least, they're going to have to mention why we're out here in the first place that led to us blowing up this fucking department store or whatever. And so in that case, because of because of the media's role in what's you know, violent or nonviolent, what's deemed as a legitimate grievance to protest. Well, then, and, and, and a lot of times what's deemed as a grievable protest involves violence because the media knows that violence is going to, you know, all that does is just mean extra viewership. Oh, cats want to, you know, people want to watch fucking the target blow up or the police precinct. But is that, but is that, but that may be true, but that uh, if there, if, you know, the the picture of the burning target, it's highly sensational. That's going to run way more than the 
the mm. far more numerous examples of completely benign, however, whatever word you want to describe, but like not quote unquote violent protest. Mm-hmm. Um, and sh- yeah, definitely th- there will be some mention of the, of like the agenda of the why, but mm. I, my worry would be, and I feel like the, what's his name? Wasau? Wasau. Yeah. Was saying that oftentimes that becomes the thing that's talked about, right, right. despite the fact that the agenda is talked about, and then public, but public opinion. There's this backlash effect of public opinion, and it turns out to like that the public public opinion kind of turns against right. it, and that, that like all the so, fear mongering and shit like that. So I, I would say to that is, and that's all true. And especially in a in a sense of being able to sort of undermine the objective of whatever this particular movement is or, or people out there sort of trying to air out a, a certain grievance. I think the I think with when it comes to being able to effectively use violent tactics and I'm putting violence in air quotes because I don't consider damaging private property damaging property as a form of violence but considering that's what the sort of consensus thought is I think that it's then sort of it's still it's still like as much as we don't want to put the the onus on the people protesting to make sure that th- that this message is disseminated and as clearly as possible and what the objectives of this movement and this this protest and all of that shit like you have to do like it's a PR it's a it's a PR war basically and i think that like because cats who believe in a certain who have a certain politics you know largely po- politics that align with how I view the world or whatever, I think that people look at that as like, well, this is the moral way of seeing things. And so therefore I don't have to like put any work into, you know, making people agree and come to my side as opposed to like, once you give, once you put all the sort of onus on how this narrative is constructed around violence and around the sort of purpose of this, these particular specific instances of violence or, or whatever. um, I think at that point you're giving up all your power. You're giving up like the ability to make, you know, to like control that narrative about, well, this is like, the people in Minnesota blowing up a fucking police precinct. Well, if you play it right, that's super symbolic, super like super to the point about what it is that our goals are, right? Like we're, we're trying to defund the police. Let's blow up the fucking precinct and let's start framing this shit around. Like this is the moment of reimagining our society without, you know, this militarized police force or whatever. The the burning of the police precinct is this moment and is and is the sort of example, visual and otherwise, of this like new way of of being in society and shit. And it's like to not take that opportunity 
to do that, I think, is where a lot of these a lot of movements fall short because you don't take as serious the PR side of all of this shit that's at play as opposed to just the political argumentative side that, you know, yeah, we have the the more justice based view about whatever's going on. Yeah, I don't know. I think I I think I disagree. I agree in that there are moral right and wrong answers when it comes to this shit and that there is a certain amount of uh, like I guess sacrifice that is made when you know, even if you have the moral high ground, if you are the aggrieved party and then you have to play by this other set of rules that maybe doesn't take that into account or makes you compromise your message in a certain way. But I just, I think that this country is is like a pretty conservative country. Mm -hmm. And we have a highly fucking reckless, fucking dangerous president in the goddamn Oval Office. And my worry with this shit is that like even the, the defund the police slogan, let alone people act, yet actually blowing up the police station, like the just the defund the police slogan – most of America is going to hear that shit and go, wait, so they don't want police, period. And then we're, there's going to be this backlash effect where it's like, whoa, wait, what? Like most people like living in the middle of the country, whatever, and I agree that it's fucking infuriating that like people that have certain ideas have to capitulate to people. But I don't even there. think that that's like a capitulation. That's just a, a necessary step in advancing your thought. Like I, it's if I feel a, like if I'm if I'm arguing to defund the police, then it's incumbent upon me to make sure that the person in middle America understands why defunding the police and what that actually entails, as opposed to allowing that narrative to be constructed. And then you sort of respond to that. And that's, oh, then I think we then I think we agree though. But then the defund the police is a slogan that if you don't qualify it, then it's going to fucking run wild, and people are going and right. then Trump and is going to run these fucking what is it the those re, remakes of those Horton ads of of course yeah exactly and but that's and that's all at the feet of those arguing against or arguing in favor of my bad arguing in favor of defunding the police. Like that's on, you know, I'll say as somebody who believes in it, that's on us, right? Like to, to make that argument in a way that is, that resonates with those conservative ideals. And then it's also like, we have to keep in mind too, like this is a very, very like America is the only country to have just been at war like since its inception. Right. So this isn't a conservative country in the sense that we don't have any sort of like rambunctious action. Right. Like we aren't like just sort of on the conservative in the sense of like on the defensive. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a there is a revolutionary spirit 
at the heart of all of this shit. And so it's just like, you have to understand that no, shit doesn't have to be this way. Like shit doesn't like you, you think about police and because we have this notion of police and that shit's been like propagated through culture and, and all sort of shit or whatever that police, you know, entail safety. Right. And it's just like, well, then that's not necessarily the case. If you really look at it and, you know, that kind of goes back to me saying like America just isn't a, an intellectual society. And so the the argument of trying to like make something the case through like look at the stats look at the you know that's not like let's look at this shit on a real sort of cultural level how do you attach this policing shit to because look at the crazy shit is trump trump said the the quiet part out loud he said white people get killed more than black people by the police well, if that's the case, then what what white people get killed more than black people by the police? There's a particular class of white people that are getting knocked off. Right. And so then that that makes us like ask larger questions about what policing is in America. If, well, you're white. Yeah, true. But you only make your, your household only brings in thirty thousand dollars a year. So more than likely you're going to be you know, facing those scenarios where you, you fucking with the police, like, and, and what, you know, once that comes, they trigger happy, some shit happens, boom, it's over with. Right. So it's like, I think that part is incumbent upon the people who actually believe this shit to make those arguments as opposed to responding to the arguments made against us and made against those, those points, especially Mm. when it comes to like, that defunding the police shit because that's all just sort of the police are mythologized and so <laughs> you you have to like you got to do some extra work to like unravel and unpack that like the fact that it's just a pernicious institution policing in, in itself or whatever right like so i think that that's that's my whole thing is once you get to that point of this is this is our argument or this is what our stance is we have to be the ones that control the narrative around what this stance or what this argument actually entails as opposed to allowing the power structure to then sloganize it and say this is what it is and then, I totally agree yeah. I, I 100% agree with you and I think that I guess the point I was trying to make is maybe more um transparent when you think about the the phrase black lives matter now i totally think that in i don't obviously <laughs> don't have a problem with the phrase black lives matter from that consequentialist framework of like well oh people hear that and there's going to be this backlash and then middle america is going to re-elect fucking trump and it's going to be a fucking nightmare like that is, i feel like that is to use your words is is completely incumbent on this like the, the fucking Koch brothers manipulating mm-hmm. this shit to, to now in the minds of X percentage of American black lives matter means something that it, you know, it's been right. completely distorted. Defund the police is a phrase that I feel like on the face of it entails a kind of flattening where it's like defund the police. Well, shouldn't it be defund the police and invest in fucking education? 
or make, maybe demilitarize yeah. the fucking police or like I can de- fuck with like, that one. I can fuck with that one. The, the you know what I mean? Rush. Like yeah. I feel like the defund even, the police, even with the defund the police though. And and see, this is why I say like it's sort of like incumbent. And I know we've like veered off out of violence, yeah. <laughs> but even with defund the police though, I think is like that's why I said it's still sort of incumbent upon those who are making the argument to make it clear. Well, education has been defunded. Like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, All these different, like all of this shit is already defunded, but we still have public schools, right? Like public schools are still a thing. Public healthcare centers are still a thing. The post office is still like Mm. all these sort of public institutions that are still around that have been gutted and defunded for decades or whatever. So to say like, oh, well, they're saying defund the police. So then there's not going to be any police. And then therefore it's going to be anarchy as a, you know, as a result is sort of like allowing people to just sort of fill that vacuum with the worst possible outcome of what this shit is. And then to even understand like, or sort of their misunderstanding of violence and of crime and all of this shit. Like a lot of that shit comes from, you know, the material conditions that you find yourself. So if you are in a, an impoverished area, well, yeah, it's going to be a, a, it's going to be heightened crime because motherfuckers are just in a more vulnerable situation or whatever. So yeah, if you have, if you defund the police where you're giving them millions and and close to billions of dollars through, uh, funding and, and equipment and armaments and shit like that, if you're able to redirect those funds into public education, into, um, all sorts of different avenues, then yeah, you're able to, to create a society that doesn't really need to have that much fucking crime go on because people aren't hungry. People aren't fucking, you know, without, and so I think like that's the part of the the argument that's especially on a mainstream level is missing. I think people are so it's hundred percent missing. People are so invested in arguing against the the sort of prevailing sloganized notion of what defund the police and all of this shit, what black lives matter, like all of this shit is sort of like being rendered in a way through, you know, mainstream media that just misses the point. And it's like, and then, and, and yeah, that's, that's why I say like people are trying to argue against that shit and, and, refute that shit and it's just like well that's not really in arguing for what what it is that that you actually think this defund the police project is or the abolitionist project for prisons and shit is you are necessarily arguing and refuting the mainstream narrative in that just focus on what the fuck it is that you want to do and and, and want to get across as opposed to like oh this person's racist because they're saying this or this this uh you know this person is is using this trope or whatever whatever and it's just like now they got you on a on a ground and mm. they get to dictate the the terms and conditions of you know of that conversation at that point and i just think you just lose you lose out any potential of like 
gaining any sort of like cross-racial, cross-cultural coalition because these motherfucking white people out here poor and, and hungry than a motherfucker, just like a lot of black and brown people are. And it's like once you're able to see that and and galvanize people around those common you know, experiences, I think is when you have a, you, you truly have a violent movement (laughs) bringing us back to that. You truly have a violent movement at that point, because you are completely undermining the entire makeup of this system as we currently understand it. Yeah. I also, I mean, since we, since the fucking opening segment was about responsibility, I'm not for any kind of violence, like actual violence. Mm -hmm. No way. And I think Butler's argument She's pretty much coming with this Peter, like she's basically like a post-structuralist Peter Singer. Yeah, like yeah. really is what it amounts to yeah. in the end. Like, yeah. like I think there's a lot of really fascinating parts in the Butler. Um, really, her argument is that we are obligated to protect with nonviolence those against uh, those against whom violence is perpetrated, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree, I yeah. agree, I agree. I, I, I really the the part that I actually enjoyed was her phantasmagoria talk in terms of like the police, you know, sort of being able to justify the the murder of unarmed black and brown people through like this, you know, racial phantasm of, well, they're black, so then they're sort they of always violent. already violent, right? Yep. Um, I thought that was super, that was super dope just in terms of like how it actually plays out and then how the racial phantasm creates this like larger sort of social imaginary around race and like, you know, the, that same like phantasmagoric sort of manifestation of the police officer killing the unarmed black man is the same reason why the, you know, woman sort of clutch, white woman clutches her purse when she's in the elevator with, yep the black dude as well. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was, that was super dope. Yeah. And yeah, I, I thought for me, what I really liked about the Butler was when she deconstructs, um, the, like the self-defense justification of violence mm-hmm. where like we have these, um, these prohibitions against violence, except in the case of self-defense, she really interrogates that notion. And she's like, well, we can defend ourselves, but what is the self? Clearly, we can defend people against violence with violence. Also, according to this this justificatory logic, people in my family, people who I love, my friends, right. and we can extend this. And then she's like, "Well, self defense is often invoked when it comes to war." And then right. it's like, "Well, we're justifying violence with moral reasons on a demographic basis." People that look like me, people that I love, people that I care about, people that share the same language, people that share the same borders. And mm-hmm. then she's like, well, what the fuck is demography doing in any justification of violence? And basically she takes this justification of violence to its absurd conclusion, however powerful it may be in the moment. And that's why she's to- advocating for the force of nonviolence, right. which I – I'm with. Yeah, I'm yeah. With. I, and and I think like what she also did that was pretty cool too was like sort of highlighted, or for me what it highlighted was this like violence is always rooted in this like survival survivalist justification, 
Yep. And it's like, so even the state, like, that's why I like, so going back to like, you know, is like protesting peaceful and how we categorize it or describe it, like, is that really violence? Well, I mean, I guess the state would consider it violent because it harms the existence of the state as presently constituted or whatever. And so like, yeah, you guys are protesting, but that protest as peaceful as it is could turn around and and make everybody say, well, you know what? We need a fucking different type of society or whatever. Well, then that, you know, that that state could deem that violence or whatever and sort of justify sending out military troops and all of that type of shit or whatever. And so like this, the whole like notion of survival and being able to, to distort and pervert that to one's ends is, is super like salient in all cases of like how violence, particularly like political violence sort of plays out. Practice nonviolence, especially interpersonally. That is one take. Hell yeah. Interpersonally practice nonviolence when it comes to the state. Uh, we might have to we might have to figure out some things. Yeah, I, we gotta we gotta revisit the police because I've had like a I feel like where I'm coming from with the defund the police shit is that like the the militarization of the police and it just feels like all these cats that are like all, like this fucking blue wall of silence and uh, all the solidarity they're showing with each other and like the bar again like you said like the bar is so fucking low for them like really the essence of these protests is that like we just don't want innocent people to be killed by the police who are purportedly yeah it's, a, it's i mean it's really that, all that's it black is lives, that's black lives matter that's yeah. black lives matter <laughs> i do though where I've changed is that I've come to realize that I do think the police being a police officer is – and this doesn't apply to any other like evaluative statement I might have about the police, but it is a thankless job. And I feel like we have this society where, like you said, we've uh, we fucking underfunded education. We have systematically deprived whole populations of people of opportunity. We have – sequestered people into uh, cities where there's no opportunity and it's intergenerational and we have no infrastructure, no support, no way to it's, you know, rugged individualism for these cats, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. And then we look at the police and say, well, but that's why you get, that's why you pay them $30,000 and you give them a gun. <laughs> I mean, and that's why I'm saying it's yeah. like it's like, and that's why I. I mean, the, the I thing little- is, the thing is, is that police need to realize their class position within this larger system and understand that you're just fodder for the system. Now, it's you know, police officers here and there who are uh, making a lot of money within this shit and, and whatever, but for the most part, you're just fodder. Like you have you have a thankless job because you're you're uh we're putting mental health and crime and all of this shit on on the police on the police who are unqualified under under undereducated and unqualified to do 50 percent of their job at least 100 percent and so 100 percent yeah so i mean the the issue is 
why I, you know, I am more of a sort of structuralist. Like I believe in systems and, you know, the way that we sort of construct our society through institutions is how we, you know, sort of how we live and how we experience the world is, is just a sort of like commentary on these larger structures and institutions. And for the police, your average beat cop is some high school educated, you know, motherfucker who doesn't know half the shit that he should in order to have that job. And then to then say like, this person's only making $40,000 a year. Like you need to really train police officers. You need to pay them what the fuck they need to be paid in order for that job to be done effectively and then you need to defund in the way that you demilitarize the police but then you add more money into social work and and shit like that or whatever to deal with like why are we why are we criminalizing homelessness and mental health and shit like that or whatever like i shouldn't have to call the police officer because some dude is going through a mental health crisis or whatever right so right yeah i totally agree yep yeah but let's end it there all right uh Thank you, everyone who's still listening. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Appreciate y'all. Now that you mention it, mention it, mention it, mention it. Yeah.